Hi, everyone. Laszlo Montgomery here with part six of our little Deng Xiaoping overview, our little Zhou Ma Kan Hua glance at Ezra Vogel's new book, Deng Xiaoping and the Transformation of China. came out recently, published by Belknap Press at Harvard, where Dr. Vogel is a professor emeritus. We've traced Deng Xiaoping's life all the way up to the end of 1976, that year in Chinese history that produced so many shockers. Deng had a lot of friends and allies where and when it counted. I mentioned last time that Ye Jianying and Li Xianyan had already begun to feel out Hua Guofeng about maybe letting Deng come back and resume his work in the party and the government. Hua Guofeng, though getting nothing except the fullest support from everyone high up, he's still wary of bringing back such a force of nature as Deng Xiaoping. His record going back to the 1920s always spoke for itself. He was a doer, not a talker, and everyone knew why Mao had been pushing him down and then kept picking him back up. So in this episode, and again, when I came up with this brainy idea to sort of skim over Vogel's new book and introduce Deng Xiaoping, I was thinking maybe three or four episodes, but here it is, we're just getting started, and now it's episode six. I fear the worst that this is turning into the Deng Xiaoping history podcast. Anyways, let's keep going and see how far we can get today before the buzzer rings. So let's get started with the beginning of the end for Chairman Hua Guofeng. Like I said last time, he really rose to the occasion when it came to dealing with Mao's death and smashing the Gang of Four. But he ended up shooting himself in the foot shortly thereafter on February 7th, 1977. In an editorial in the three most important party mouthpieces, namely... People's Daily, Red Flag, and Liberation Army Daily, Hua came out with an editorial which became known as the Two Whatevers, the Lianke Fan Shi. This was where Hua says, quote, We will resolutely uphold whatever policy decisions Chairman Mao made and unswervingly follow whatever instructions Chairman Mao gave. The Two Whatevers, ladies and gentlemen. Now think about this for a second. If you were an up-and-comer without a very deep power base and you needed to sort of shore up your power and authority at the top in the face of all these legendary 70- and 80-year-old party elders, what would you do? Hua's strongest card that he held, his one ace, the one degree of separation that stood between the top position of authority and political oblivion was that Chairman Mao had personally made the decision for Hua to replace him. So Hua Guofeng was playing this card here. Because if the party line was that whatever Mao said was gospel, then who could say anything against it? Or for that matter, against Hua Guofeng, Mao's chosen successor. Remember the famous words, Ni Ban Shi, Wu Feng Xin? With you in charge, I am at ease. Hua was playing this card. So all the Hua people lined up behind him, and this became known as the whatever faction. Chief among them was Wang Dongxing, who we mentioned in the last episode, was head of the palace guard, if you will, who did that bang-up excellent job arresting the gang of four. He may have helped bring them down, but that didn't mean he was a Deng Xiaoping man, or a reformist, if we can now officially start using this word. These reformists, as they began to be called, they were led by the old legends, like Deng, of course, Wang Chen, Ye Jianying, Hu Qiaomu, Chen Yun, Geng Biao, and of course, all the collective protégés of all these men. They all, to the last man, didn't really think the Cultural Revolution was a very productive campaign, and they all sort of did whatever they had to do to survive it. So now Chairman Mao is gone, and it's still too early, everyone agrees on this, it's still too early to start passing judgments about 
Bow's legacy and messing around with that third rail. But just the same, none of these guys, most of whom had suffered the usual degradations and humiliations during the Cultural Revolution, wanted to make it official policy to say whatever Mao said was correct. That was sort of like cutting themselves off at the knees. And the big issue, the main thing that took center stage when looking at the two whatevers, was the whole Tiananmen April 5th incident in 1976. Officially, in the record, this was Deng's fault. Not only did no one believe this, but irrefutable evidence had been uncovered that proved the whole April 5th thing was all trumped up by Jiang Qing and her three other cohorts. And thanks to these charges, now proven false, Deng ended up taking a big fall. So here's Wang Zhen, Ye Jianying, Li Xianyan, and Chen Yun all lobbying hard and taking a stand to bring Deng back into the leadership. If the two whatevers became party policy, then forget about bringing Deng Xiaoping back. That would be against one of the whatevers. And besides, there were, on a very simple level, two kinds of people who were now vying for power. Those who had suffered from the Cultural Revolution and those who had benefited. Obviously, Hua Guofeng was the poster boy as far as who had benefited. So February 7th, when Hua lets this one fly, this editorial, was like a catalyst that caused the reformists, you know, all the Zhou Enlai types, to sort of coalesce and unite. There was this buzz in the air around this notion that this was a critical moment for China. You know, sort of like the 1880s, 1890s. China reached a crossroads and had to do or die, take one side or the other. In this case, open up or continue to keep the Westerners at bay with the scent of the two whatevers lingering in the air. After all that had just happened, it just seemed the wrong path, choosing strict party orthodoxy over practical measures. And besides all this, the way most people felt, they had had enough of these policies and the mood to reaffirm them all and paint the country into a corner was just too unpopular a sentiment in 1977. Hey, who knew? So right about now, the tide is starting to turn on Hua Guofeng. The reformists, they were still pushing hard for Deng's return. And Hua Guofeng and Wang Dongxing were, with all their foot dragging and in so many words saying, hey, what's the hurry? Although Deng had been formally cleared of any blame for the April 5th Tiananmen incident, he was still on the sidelines and still not in any position of power. But that didn't stop Deng from making it clear he was not at all in favor of Hua's editorial calling for the two whatevers. He still had an opinion, and he was still Deng Xiaoping. The pressure was really on for Hua to do something as far as Deng's future was concerned. Finally, in May of 1977, after Deng writes a letter that, without reservation, said he accepted Hua Guofeng's leadership, and then after this letter was circulated around the party and everyone got to see the proof, Hua felt secure enough politically to make Deng's return official. Mind you, Deng still wouldn't come out and say anything good about the two whatevers, but as long as he was so publicly affirming Hua's leadership, he was okay for now. So Deng was going to be put back in all his former positions of power. He's back being a Fu Zongli, a, a vice premier. He was back in charge of the military and foreign affairs. And in addition to this, Deng volunteered to take up the portfolio of science, technology, and education, three causes that Deng had a passion for. Vogel points out that Deng was most of all dedicated to science and considered that to be the engine that would drive advancements in agriculture, industry, and national defense. 
And these four modernizations, as they became known, science plus the three I just mentioned, were one of the cornerstones of Deng's later legacy. Hua was more than happy to let Deng do this because there wasn't any real obvious relation between science and the core party issues of the day. Maybe Hua thought this would all keep Deng busy and hopefully too busy to mount any serious political challenges to Hua's leadership. In fact, it was the science aspect of Deng's portfolio where he dedicated the most time and energy. The military, he shared these responsibilities with the other CMC vice chairman, Ye Jianying, but Ye did all the heavy lifting. Deng didn't get too overly involved in foreign affairs either yet. No, his baby was science and technology, and he was making fundamental changes, which included bringing back a lot of these people like teachers, professors, and scientists, uh, bringing them back into the mainstream and assuring them no, you know, hundred flowers thing, you know, followed by an anti-rightist campaign was going to stomp on them for pursuing these intellectual and technical pursuits. And Deng personally saw to it that science was advanced in the classrooms and who knows how many scientists in China today, born in the late 70s, early 80s, who benefited from these changes. Deng's official big moment came at the third plenum of the 10th Party Congress, July 17, 1977. The topic titled, quote, The Decision Concerning the Return of Comrade Deng Xiaoping to Work was discussed, and it's actually on this date that Deng formally and by the book resumes his former positions and titles that he lost after he took the fall for the April 5th incident. So he went from political disgrace to the number three position on the CCP totem pole. Hua was first, Ye Jianying second, and Deng third, ahead of Li Xianyan and Wang Dongxing. Good comeback. A few days later, Deng addressed the gathered party leaders and members and laid out his priorities. They were improvement in the treatment of intellectuals and party building. He went on to say a lot about Chairman Mao and how to interpret what he said and how to apply it to different situations and was still as gung-ho as ever in declaring Mao's thought to be the guiding light of the CCP. So now it's all official. When Deng made his debut in the public eye on July 30th, 1977 at the China versus Hong Kong soccer match in Beijing, he got a resounding standing ovation. There seemed to be genuine elation across the broad masses about Deng coming back. But in mid-August at the 11th Party Congress, already the party unity that had held so well after Mao died was now showing signs of cracks. Hua's faction was still making a lot of noise about Mao and, you know, being a little too heavy with the propaganda. And for the first time, you start to see a lot of grumbling about the way Hua Guofeng is handling things. So once again, it looks like these two factions are going to go to the mattresses. And Deng Xiaoping, in his closing address at the session, made a masterful political move by uttering the words, quote, We must revive and carry forward the practice of seeking the true path from facts the fine tradition and style which Chairman Mao fostered. Now, this was going to be a hard one to refute. In one fell swoop, Deng declares his loyalty and respect to Mao, but at the same time says, shir shir qiu shir, seek truth from facts. So these four characters we today attribute to Deng, Deng was telling the assembled multitude at the Great Hall of the People, hey, I didn't say it, Mao said it. So for the time being, everyone just sort of chewed on that for a while. No coup d'etats carried out just yet. Instead, Deng plunged headfirst into his main passion, 
not playing bridge, but building the foundation in China to foster an atmosphere of scientific learning and innovation. He attacked this head-on and with the usual degree of enthusiasm. So, 1977-78, these were very productive years for Deng. From the ground up, he rebuilt systems and created conditions such that education and science could once again thrive naturally in a civilization that had once led the world for thousands of years in feats of science, engineering, invention. This rush to modernize and upgrade China's brain power included sending thousands of graduate students to the great universities of the world, especially in the U.S., to study science. And this policy personally touched me because when I was just starting to learn Chinese at the University of Illinois, I befriended many of these visiting scholars, as they were known back then, who were you know, mostly 40-something-year-old men studying physics or something like that. And these guys all taught me a lot. And they were the very first Chinese from the mainland that I ever met. And they did exactly what Deng expected of them. Spent long hours in the lab, soaking up every possible drop of knowledge and information. And then brought it back to China. And then collectively, Deng thought, with all these tens of thousands of visiting scholars all cycling in and out of China the total knowledge base would theoretically slowly begin to lift off and be built on a strong foundation. So this is what Deng busied himself with. Sounds easy, but it wasn't. He micromanaged this because he knew, being a big-picture man, a visionary, that if China was going to become what we now see in the 21st century, they had to start at the bottom and start at once. That's what he did. He moved people around, cleared log jams, created institutions, and made endless recommendations, which, from a guy ranked third in the party, were taken essentially as an order. Well, percolating in the background amidst all this was an ideological battle. Lined up on one side were everyone who supported the ideas behind the two whatevers, and facing off against this club were those who now had their own two whatevers, so to speak. These were the party loyalists who subscribed instead to their own signature article that appeared in the paper. This one came out May 10th, 1978, called Practice is the Sole Criterion for Judging Truth. In short, it was sort of diametrically opposite from what the two whatevers espoused. You could really only choose one or the other. You couldn't subscribe to both. And when Hua and his partner, Wang Dongxing, saw this printed, they used all their might to squelch this article thing, and they stamped their feet and pounded the tables to put this cranberry sauce back in the can. But it was out. And even though it's still 31 years before we see the first Weibo, the word spread fast, and everyone saw the article. And it was one of Deng Xiaoping's chief protégés, Hu Yaobang, who was running with this ball, so not unless someone big would stand up for him in the face of Hua and Wang's pressure, all the momentum would be lost. Well, of course, someone big did back up Hu Yaobang. Deng came out publicly and sided firmly with Hu, and that was that. Now everyone knew where everyone stood. And by the way, even though Hua Guofeng was the CMC chairman, Central Military Commission, guess who controlled the military? Hua? or the team of Ye Jianying and Deng. So, interesting dynamic developing. But who needed the military when the whole mood of the country seemed to all be moving in one direction? In Chapter 7 of Vogel's book, he mentions three turning points. The three things that happened that irreversibly changed the tide and 
put Deng Xiaoping into the topmost position. These three events, all in 1978, were Gu Mu's study tour to Western Europe from May 2nd to June 6th, the Central Party Work Conference on November, and the third plenum of the 11th Party Congress. Let's quickly look at all three. Let's do Gu Mu's trip first. Gu Mu. He was, of course, a high-ranking official in the central government, vice premier, high up in the central committee. Gu later played a leading role in setting up the special economic zones later on. So he led a group of 20 to Western Europe between May 2nd and June 6th, 1978. They went to 15 cities in France, Switzerland, Germany, Denmark, and Belgium. The importance of this trip was not only that it was such an eye-opener. On the one hand, the things they saw magnified China's backwardness. But on the other hand, it laid out for all to see what the possibilities were for China if they opened up and embraced the West. Then Gu Mu came back to China after the trip, and he was able to very effectively report his findings in such a way that it struck a nerve and people stood up and took notice. And on the eve of their trip, before Gu Mu and the delegation left uh, for Europe, Deng visited him personally and gave him last-minute instructions and, and told him, quote, we ought to study the successful experiences of capitalist countries and bring them back to China. Well, let me tell you, there was no way you could say these kind of words when Mao was alive. Well, what is there to say? I'm not going to go so far as to compare it to the tales Zhang Qian brought back to Han Wu Di during the Han Dynasty. Y'all remember that one, CHP episode 47. Zhang Qian came back from a decade-long journey to the West, and when he got in front of the emperor, he informed him, we're not alone, there's other huge and mighty civilizations out there. When Gu Mu's delegation returned, they immediately met with all the top leaders and the stories they brought back. The things they said were downright fantastical to everyone gathered there, including Hua Guofeng and, of course, Wang Dongxing. Everyone heard one jaw-dropping thing after another about the advances in science and technology, the openness of their society, the relative wealth of common workers, the transportation infrastructures, you name it. This delegation was like a sponge, and they brought back first-hand information right at the perfect time when the groundswell for opening up to the West was just beginning to happen. They said these capitalist countries were also willing to lend capital and transfer technology. I mean, this was completely unexpected and shocking news. And Gu Mu, he was so respected for his pragmatic, no-nonsense, and professional way he did everything. No one would dare question his word or doubt his integrity or that he might, you know, spin the reports in favor of, you know, one way. They sat back and listened well into the evening. And by the time the last report had been given and the last question answered, everyone was sufficiently stunned to the extent that there was this feeling that there could be no going back. And the two whatevers now seemed even more out of touch and impractical than ever before. Deng met with Gu Mu personally and got his own briefing. The two discussed what to do next. And they decided that textiles, Fang Zhipin, was the way to go. This is the industry they opened up first and used as the guinea pig, bringing in all kinds of Western technologies and processes. Deng and Gu Mu believed they should start with textiles and use this to ignite the whole light industrial manufacturing business in China. 
and you know the rest of course is history so we can really trace china's opening up to this event june 1978 the doors swung open in china and the earliest foreigners began to arrive china was now open for business the next thing that helped to usher in the dung era was the 36-day Central Party Work Conference, November 10th to December 15th, 1978. This was Deng Xiaoping's Zunyi. Remember the Zunyi Conference, January 1935? Zunyi's in northern Guizhou. This was the conference, the event that put Mao in the driver's seat as far as, you know, who was the main man at the party center. Deng called the discussion at this work conference the best and most lively since the Hundred Flowers campaign. In other words, he was supporting all the very frank and open exchanges expressed by the 210 top officials attending the work conference. Being such an important meeting at all, it was this work conference that would sort of lay the groundwork for the upcoming third plenum of the 11th Party Congress. And of course, you know, Chairman Hua Guofeng was in charge, and he opens up the work conference and says, we're going to talk about, you know, this and this first, and then suddenly the whole tone sort of shifted. What was on everyone's mind, you see, wasn't so much how to implement these reforms as much as how wrong this whole two-whatevers idea was. You see, times had changed. I suppose it was a combination of a lot of things, but the prevailing atmosphere was not so much in favor of reform and opening up to the outside world as it was to first reject all the policies going back to the Great Leap Forward. So in 1978, thanks to Deng sufficiently rallying the forces and flying all over China to get everyone pumped and using all his energies to advance these causes he believed in, People were sufficiently fed up to speak out more boldly. Hua Guofeng, he should have seen it coming. Essentially, he was thinking one thing, and everyone else was thinking something else. And the showdown, where Hua was sort of respectfully you know, pushed to the sidelines, happened between November 11th to the 25th during this 1978 work conference. There were complaints about the two whatevers and that Hua had been too slow and obstructive to reverse the verdicts on the April 5th Tiananmen incident, and he was too slow in reversing some of the chief wrongs of the Cultural Revolution and not fairly dealing with all those party faithful who had been unjustly accused of all kinds of political charges. And people said that was, should never be said in public, that Deng had been wrongfully removed from leadership, and by removing Deng, this opened the way for Hua to get in through the back door. You know, now he's the top guy, so, you know, they're saying that he benefited from Deng's misfortune. Ouch, that hurt. But in many different ways, this was the kind of talk that went on in all these dozens of small groups that met and exchanged ideas and vented. And more and more, the talk all seemed to say the same thing. Hua Guofeng, no offense, shouldn't be the man in charge. And it took Ye Jianying to go tap Hua Guofeng on the shoulder and tell him he should resign himself to the totally changed mood in the room. And Hua took this advice under consideration, and all of a sudden he started becoming reformer in charge, you know, like the Tongzhi Emperor. Chen Yun, one of the oldest and wisest of the party elders, gave a key speech where he came out and itemized all of those groups of people who had been unjustly dealt with and who should be rehabilitated. Among those who should have their verdicts reversed was Marshal Peng Dehuai, and Chen said Peng's ashes should be interred at the Babaoshan Cemetery. 
And he said the April 5th incident should be considered a popular mass movement rather than some counter-revolutionary incident. And a guy like Chen Yun, he carried a lot of weight. He was always a sort of a dry, no-nonsense, very conservative guy. His son, Chen Yuan, is today the uh, governor of the uh, China Development Bank, which is a position of ministerial rank, so he's a big guy. But not as big as his father was, though. Interesting to note, one other thing Chen Yuan said concerned Mr. Kang Sheng, who we discussed a long time ago in an earlier podcast, number CHP 11. Chen said Kang had been a villain of the Cultural Revolution, and so heinous were his actions that he should be posthumously expelled from the party. And trust me, no one liked that guy, so there was not much resistance to that. By the end of the conference... Everyone was getting everything off their chest. This whole work conference had turned into this unprecedented moment. Hua was in full retreat. I mean, he caved on everything, including everything Chen Yun asked for. The power struggle was in full force by the end of 1978. Wang Dongxing, him too. He tried to hold back the rising tide, but he was another one who was sort of a... Nobody who had totally benefited from being in charge of the palace guard during the Cultural Revolution and didn't really deserve to have all the authority he had. So Hua and Wang were now on very shaky ground. But appearances were capped and nobody got pushed out of the way yet. The two most influential voices now belonged to Deng Xiaoping and Chen Yun. It was left up to Ye Jianying to work something out between Deng and Hua. He set up a kind of arrangement where... Deng became a kind of primus inter pares, first among equals. So Deng came out and said first, we're not going to trash Mao. No matter what everyone thinks, Mao thought is still the party's guiding principle. And then, most of all, Deng called for stability. That's what China needed right now as 1979 was approaching. Some stability to create the right environment to effectively carry out the four modernizations. December 13th, 1978, the party work conference concludes, and Deng gives the keynote address at the closing session. This is where he said all those assembled had to learn how to emancipate their minds, seek truth from facts, and unite as one. As far as Mao Zedong was concerned, he was a great man who made some errors, and there's no need right now to make looking into these errors a party priority. So Mao's official legacy was safe for now. And he went right into discussing all his ideas about reform, opening up, establishing the responsibility system, allowing some capitalistic practices to return, and then taking the risk that maybe some in society might benefit from these policies before others. So the new era had now begun. Now this whole five-week work conference was really one of those kinds of dress rehearsals for a bigger and more high-profile event. And this event, of course, was the third plenum of the 11th Party Congress. This was the official blast-off of Gaike Kaifeng, reform and opening up, not just talking about it. At the third plenum, it became the party line. The session began less than a week after Deng gave his historic closing speech at the uh, work conference. The long and short of this historic moment in Chinese history was that Deng officially became the paramount leader, although his titles didn't change. On paper, Hua was still the top guy. There was absolutely no fanfare given and nothing in the papers that mentioned the shift of power at the very, very capstone of the pyramid. So by the end of 1978 and then into 1979, Deng became the top guy without 
any of the trappings of this position. And slowly, slowly, in a very steady and methodical way, he pushed Hua Guofeng aside, one speech at a time, one directive at a time, drip, drip, drip. Slowly, he diminished Hua's authority and standing. And all the while, and especially after the third plenum was history, you had the whole democracy wall thing happening, and the Chinese people got in on the act, too. They figured if everyone else on high is talking about this stuff, I guess so can we. And right from the get-go, Deng Xiaoping was faced with this nagging question of how far it was safe to go in allowing the people to vent their anger and frustrations, you know, where to draw the line. The criticism became more and more bold, and some of those that dared to air their grievances, they really didn't hold anything back. In March, Wei Jingsheng made his big debut, calling for the fifth modernization. And right about now, Deng must have really known how Mao felt after the hundred flowers had bloomed in the summer of 1957. After encouraging the people to speak up, they did so, a little bit too enthusiastically for Deng's liking. So, March 28, 1979, Deng puts the kibosh on the whole thing. It had started to get out of hand, and the time had come to take action. Wei Jingsheng was arrested, and on March 30th, Deng announced the four cardinal principles, the Jipun Yuanzi. Deng said, Writings that challenge the socialist path, the dictatorship of the proletariat, the leadership of the CCP, or Marxism, Leninism, Mao Zedong thought, were not allowed. And that, my friends, was the end, more or less, of the whole democracy wall thing. If there was one thing Deng didn't like, it was unwarranted criticism of the party and anything that challenged party supremacy. Before we call it quits, let's just look at one more big event in the life of Deng Xiaoping. This involves the war with Vietnam in early 1979. How did that whole thing start? Well, Vietnam-China relations had a long, complicated history going back to the earliest times. There was no love lost between these two on-again, off-again friends and rivals. But after the Vietnam War ended with the U.S., which, by the way, China supported the Viet Cong to a very high degree, the relationship wasn't too good now. And now Vietnam was snuggling up close to Russia. And this is when the Russians moved into Cameron Bay and got to enjoy all the infrastructure left behind by the Americans. So now, what we, the Americans, faced in Cuba in 1962, China was looking at the same potential situation. They didn't like it and all that it implied. You have a lot of ethnic Chinese in Vietnam. And under the new regime in Hanoi, the ethnic Chinese didn't fare too well and were the targets of constant attacks. These Chinese Vietnamese began fleeing across the border into China and as the pressure became worse and, you know, the stories got out about, you know, what they were facing in Vietnam. In fact, it got so bad that the Chinese government demanded to the Vietnamese that they cut this out. The Vietnamese paid this no heed and the persecution continued. China-Vietnam relations continued to deteriorate in 1977 and 78. In fact, Deng spent most of 1978 on the road visiting new foreign friends and trying to drum up support not only for his four modernizations, but also to counter the Soviet-Vietnam threat. This was the time also, in mid to late 1978, that Deng also began sending out all kinds of positive signals to all the overseas Chinese of Southeast Asia and encouraged them to show their patriotism and lend their support in helping to build the new China. 
He opened up relations with Japan, who Deng saw as a key in helping China to achieve its goals and technological advancement. On August 12, 1978, a treaty was signed and relations resumed between these neighbors who, you know, China and Japan, who over 2,000 years had been the best of friends and the most bitter of enemies. Now, also going on in the background in mid-1978 were the talks to resume diplomatic relations between the U.S. and China. Jimmy Carter was president, and he had his people working on this sensitive subject. We'll focus in on the whole episode of U.S.-China relations in 1978-79 in another podcast. There's a lot that Vogel has written about this chapter in Deng's life, and of course, Deng's triumphant visit to the U.S. in January-February 1979, right on the heels of being named Time's Man of the Year. And this, of course, was the time when Sinomania started taking off in the U.S., and it had a huge impact on me, that's for sure. It was right at this time, just a few months after Deng visited the U.S., and there was so much buzz in the air about the potential of U.S.-China relations on all fronts. And right then, in early 1979, I remember I said, i got to learn to speak this language. That's when I started learning uh, Chinese. Anyways, I digress. Those were heady times. Let's get back to Vietnam, and then we'll call it quits. February 17th to March 16th, one month. Things had deteriorated sufficiently enough between China and Vietnam by early 1979. Something had to give. Everyone knew Vietnam was going to pull the trigger and invade Cambodia, one of China's little buddies. The guy in charge down there in Cambodia was none other than Pol Pot. He was telling Deng it would be a good idea to send some troops down to Cambodia and, you know, sort of flood the zone like China did in North Korea back in the early 50s against the Americans. But Deng didn't want to get bogged down in anything long term. He opted instead for a quick one-two punch, quick strike, get in, get out, you know, mind you, while all this is going on, this planning of the attack and escalation and hostilities between China and Vietnam. This was all behind-the-scenes stuff to all the action that we just talked about. You know, the work conference, the third plenum, all this was going on at the same time. So, Dung, he came out on top at the end of 1978. Vietnam invades Cambodia and overthrows Pol Pot's Khmer Rouge regime, and now it's early 1979, and Dung advocates to go in and whack Vietnam. Dung had full ownership of this war with Vietnam. It was his baby from start to finish. February 17th, the attack begins. 200,000 Chinese soldiers invade across the Sino-Vietnam border. In the end, 25,000 Chinese killed, 37,000 wounded. They took the northern provincial capital of Lang San right across the border. They also took a few other provincial capitals. But most of the fighting was centered around Lang Song. Anyways, they took the city, declared victory, and true to his word, Deng had everyone out of there in 29 days. Now, if you ask any Chinese, they'll say, we went in, we kicked Vietnam's butt. If you ask a Vietnamese, they'll say the total opposite. China proved a couple points by this 29-day war, but overall, they certainly didn't kick the Vietnamese out of Cambodia. Vietnam only started to withdraw in 1988. So who won this war? Is still in dispute. But one thing's for sure, it wasn't a fabulous showing by China and exposed to the leaders China's inadequacy as a fighting force. But this whole episode did give the Soviets food for thought as far as how easy it wasn't going to be to use Vietnam to contain China. And the Vietnamese knew if they had their sights on any other Southeast Asian nation's territory, 
the Chinese weren't going to stand idly by. So not only the Sino-Soviet border, but the Sino-Vietnam border, both were flooded with troops facing off against each other. And this is the way it was until things cooled down a little. Deng's main goal was to crush any attempts for the Soviet Union and Vietnam to encircle China. This is what he wanted to avoid, and on this point, Deng succeeded. But any way you look at it, the Sino-Vietnam War of January-February 1979 wasn't China's finest hour, but they succeeded just enough to be able to claim victory. And I think we'll stop here. We're running a little longer than I like. We're only about halfway through Ezra Vogel's new biography of Deng Xiaoping. Here is where the author offers up a tidal wave of information about what happened once Deng returned to the top spot. China was reintegrating herself into the world community of nations, modernizing, transforming society, and doing a lot of stuff all at one time. Next week, we'll pick up in 1979 and try and get through the main bullet points of Deng's life from here on out. Hopefully, we'll make some headway next time. We only got one single year out of the way in this episode. And that's all I have for today. This is Laszlo Montgomery, your humble narrator, as always. Well, not always, but almost always. Signing off from Claremont, California, right on the easternmost edge of Los Angeles County. Join us next week if you have the time for another edition of the Deng Xiaoping History Podcast. Yeah, I know, that's what it's becoming, isn't it? Hey, but what a life he had. I hope you're enjoying this overview as much as I am. Take care, all, and hope to see you next time for another exciting episode of the China History Podcast.